following sermon was delivered at the 1030 worship service at the United Methodist Church of Kent. Please enjoy. In the introduction to her 2014 book on Jesus' parables, the author and scholar Amy Jill Levine refers to these short stories of Jesus, these parables Jesus tells as open narratives, open narratives that, quote, invite us into engagement with them. Each reader, she says, will hear a distinct message and may find that the same parable leaves multiple impressions over time. That's how parables function for us, and certainly that's how they must have functioned for the crowds who heard these stories that Jesus told first. Occasionally, we are told that Jesus might pull aside a few of the disciples to offer them some direct interpretation of these stories, but the crowds as a whole needed to find their own understandings, and so too we must find ours. Instead of offering simple and straightforward lessons, parables communicate layers of meaning. Today's gospel, for example, this second of three parables told to us in rapid succession, all in Matthew chapter 25, and, and like the other two, the one before and after, perhaps even more so today's, can be a little slippery. Especially for those of us so captivated by capitalism that we cannot even imagine any other way, this story of servants investing money can sound to us an awful lot like Jesus urging us to invest money wisely, to maximize our financial returns. But because this is a parable, and we know that there is always more to Jesus' stories than what appears to us immediately on the surface level, and because we know how Jesus generally taught about money, we can be sure then that today's story is not really about money, or not only about money anyway. Money is the metaphor that Jesus is using to move us deeper, to point us toward a more transformative meaning, toward something more encompassing than just our bank accounts or, or just our economic concerns. At the core of today's story is this word often translated into English directly from Greek as talent, although we heard it today as valuable coin instead. That more traditional translation, talent, can be a little misleading, suggesting to us that this story is about using our talents as we think about talents, that is, our, our skills and our abilities toward God's purposes in this world. Now, that's not a bad lesson, of course, but it's not necessarily what Jesus' story intends. For the first readers and hearers of this story, talent did not mean skills or abilities. A talent was a specific coin. A talent was, as it's translated today, a very valuable coin. In fact, a single talent, a single talent may have been worth about 15 years worth of wages for a well-paid laborer. And so when this man who was leaving on a trip handed his possessions over to his servants, what he gave them was a whole lot of money. It was a staggering, a surprising, a ridiculously, frankly, amount of money. Almost certainly, Jesus never would have seen that much money in his lifetime, neither anyone in his audience. It's an absurd amount of money, which again suggests for us that Jesus is intending to point us beyond the money to something else. This isn't Jesus' practical investment advice, how to get the most bang for your buck. It's about something else. 
It's about something more important for any of us who would be his disciples. It's a story about trust and about the life-giving risks that we are freed to take when we are freed from our fears. The story begins with trust and risk on the part of the master. Again, on his way out of town, he entrusts his vast wealth into the hands of three servants. Each of them is given an enormous amount of money and no instructions for what to do with it. Obviously, the man trusts them, and he knows them. He gives to each of them, we are told, according to their ability. After some time away, he returns and checks in with the servants. Two of them have doubled their money. The third has done nothing with it, but returns it exactly as he has been given it. Instead of investing his talent, this valuable coin, or or doing some sort of business with it, instead he buried it in the ground, which incidentally we should say was basically what the law at that time actually required for him to do. You see, earning interest at all on money was considered usury and was prohibited by their laws. But note that this is not the motivation for his actions. The third servant does not say to the master that he was just trying to follow the rules here. Toward the end of the story, he says that he did what he did because he was afraid. His fear was his motivation. Instead of behaving based in the same trust that had been shown toward him, he behaved based in his fear. Fear which is a condition that so many of our scriptures try to push against. Over and over again in our scriptures, it is this call, this mandate, almost like a mantra, do not fear, do not be afraid. Do not fear, for I am with you, God says to us through the prophet Isaiah, to a community who is dislocated and uncertain. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. The Apostle Paul writes to the early church in Philippi, a community struggling to discern their identity and to live into it. Do not be anxious or do not be afraid. Rather, bring up all of your requests to God, and then the peace of God that exceeds all understanding will keep your hearts and minds safe in Christ Jesus. Or in the familiar Psalm 23, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And then shortly after Jesus' death, while the disciples have locked themselves away because they are afraid that those who killed Jesus are coming for them next, peace be with you, the risen Jesus says. As God sent me, so now I am sending you, sending you out beyond your fears. Do not fear. We hear again and again and again, do not be afraid. And we all feel afraid sometimes, of course, but we are implored not to allow that fear to control us or to control our reactions toward each other, not to allow that fear to bury our love away. God's risk-taking love always sends us outward, outward into relationships with each other, outward into our community, risking ourselves for others in Christ's name. Do not fear. The mantra continues. Do not be afraid. Only love. 
For perfect love drives out fear, we're told in 1 John. Fear holds us back. Fear buries us away. Fear of failure or uncertainty, fear of change or of being vulnerable, fear of loss or of being perceived as not good enough, fear of the other, even fear of ourselves. Fear prevents us from living the fullness of life that God intends and desires for each of us. Love, on the other hand, love that drives out fear, is the treasure. Love is the vast and the precious gift that God entrusts into our hands, into our lives, just as the master entrusted that huge sum of money into the hands of his servants. God trusts us with that love and knows what we can do with it. Even when we don't know it, even when we don't believe it ourselves, God believes in us. God risks love toward us and invites us to let that love flow through us, to invest that love in the world, to risk ourselves as expressions of God's love for each other. We cannot hold the gift of love that God gives us. We cannot hoard that love. We cannot bury it away. For to follow Christ is to receive love and to give love, filling our ministries and activities, our habits and our homes, our time, our neighborhoods, our world, with God's self-giving love. And the more that we give love away, the more we will find love there is to share. For love always multiplies. Love always multiplies as we give it away. Essential, though, to our ability to give that love away is our willingness to trust God, even a fraction of God's trust in us. Consider again today's story. The man entrusts enormous amounts of money into the servant's hands. The third servant doesn't share what he's been given. Why? Because we're told he was afraid. And why is he afraid? I knew you are a hard man, he says. He says this, I know you are a hard man, specifically to the one who gave to him extravagantly, to the one who trusted him with everything. You harvest grain where you haven't sown it. You gather crops where you haven't planted. And so the third servant says, I was afraid. Really, it's a strange comment. And a comment entirely without basis in any of the rest of the story up to this point in it. Neither of the other two servants seem to think that the master is a hard man. And what we know of the master hardly bears that out. Quite the opposite. Generously, trustingly, he gave these servants everything that he had. Which causes me to wonder as I search after meaning in this strange little story of Jesus, if that just might be why the man, the master, is so upset about the third servant's actions. It isn't just that he hid the coin instead of using it. It's his motivation for those actions. And not only that the third servant was afraid, but his fear... His fear was based in this false representation of the one who had given him everything. That, I think, is the real crux of this parable as we peel back its multiple layers. What image of God do we carry around with us? Who do we understand God to be? What is God like? The God you've come to know, the God who knows you. Who God is for us, 
the version of God that we worship and and carry around with us in the world shapes our behaviors, influences us. If our version of God is, is of one who is hard and difficult, someone who demands maximum effort all the time, who who harvests grain and gathers crops produced on the backs of others, if that's who God is for us, then we are likely to be hard and demanding too, both toward each other and even toward ourselves. But if, on the other hand, we worship a God who is the generous giver of every gift, every breath, every bit of creation, every bit of love that we've ever experienced or shared, a God who trusts us with so much love and so much life and so many gifts beyond our deserving or even our imagining, well then, then we're free to be radically generous, to be recklessly loving in our relationships with each other. You see, the simple truth is that we can never grow bigger than the version of God we worship. We can never love further than the Christ the version of Christ whom we follow. So who is God for you? That's the question today's parable asks us to consider, to contemplate, and to explore. What is God like? The God you know, the God who knows you. Is God hard and demanding and stingy, as described by the third servant in today's story? Or is God ridiculously and recklessly and selflessly loving? A God who trusts you, who believes in you, who knows what you can do. That's how Jesus describes God in today's story and certainly throughout his life. So by God's grace, may that be the God whom we worship, the Christ whom we follow, the spirit whom we experience and encounter. Not some puny little God who is demanding and petty and punitive, but a great God, a great God who is love itself. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you for listening to this edition.